Well, have you ever heard news that was so great that your first response was to question whether or not the, <clears throat> the news was true? From time to time, I like to scroll through Instagram. I don't post ever, but I like to scroll. And I was scrolling through Instagram, and I saw this little vignette come up about this couple that had struggled with infertility, and they found out they were pregnant. And so they were going to, to tell their parents that they were pregnant. So they created this box, this present. They put a sonogram picture in the present, and they were going to give it to the parents. And so they do that. They give it to the mom. The mom opens it, and she immediately begins to scream, saying, Is this true? Are, are you kidding with me? Are you sure that this is true? And the, the, the um, daughter starts shaking her head, yes, it's true, yes, it's true. And they start weeping, she starts screaming, she throws the box to her husband, so he's figuring out what's going on. I think, and I'm weeping as I'm watching all of this, I think often for us, we're like that mom on Instagram. And Isaiah's audience, uh, his initial response their initial response to the good news announcing a coming king, priest, and prophet was also one of disbelief. And in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1, Isaiah writes this, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah is saying to his audience, I know that you're struggling to believe such good news about a coming Savior. But it's true. My prophecy about the coming Savior has been given to you wrapped in a poetic words to tell you that your wait is not in vain. Christ the Savior is coming. And who is this Savior? Last week we looked in Isaiah 11. And we learned that Jesus Christ is the King. The King who seeks to bring about peace, justice, equity. He protects the downtrodden and invites the disenfranchised to feast with him. He is the king who comes with healing hands. Now this morning as we look at Isaiah chapter 53, we learn that Jesus Christ is a priest. Isaiah 53 tells us three things about his priesthood that I want us to consider this morning. First, it tells us that Jesus is the the sympathetic high priest. Secondly, it tells us that Jesus is the self-sacrificing high priest. And thirdly, it tells us that Jesus is the victorious high priest. Pray with me. Father, we're grateful this morning for the opportunity to come and worship. We don't take this freedom for granted. And we're mindful of our brothers and sisters around the world that are gathered in small, dark places, hiding as they worship this morning, and yet boldly lifting up their voices. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would comfort them. We ask this morning, Holy Spirit, that you'd speak to us through your ancient text. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So the first thing that we look at when we look at Isaiah 53 is that Jesus is the sympathetic high priest. Now, one of my new favorite 
television shows is called Ordinary Joe. Have any of y'all seen Ordinary Joe? I'm the only one that watches it. It's a great show. It's like, it's like this is us. Um, it basically follows this, this ordinary guy named Joe, and it looks at your life, and, and basically, you know, we've all wondered, what if I did this? What if I followed this career? What if I married this person and not that person? And it follows him through three different scenarios. One scenario, it follows him as if he followed his heart and his career, and he becomes this huge rock star. One is if he followed love and he married this lady and he gave up his dream of being a rock star and he became a nurse. Not, no, no dissing on nurses, but that's what he did. And then the third is he follows his dad's dream for him. His dad died um, in the towers on 9-11 and became a police officer. Now, this show is called Ordinary Joe because he's a normal, ordinary guy. And all these what-if scenarios are just interesting to follow because in each scenario, regardless of the choices that he would have made, he's the same person. Now, if you look at Isaiah 53, chapter, I mean, verses 2 through 4, Isaiah reminds us that the coming Jesus is a normal person. He's like the rest of us. He's experienced all the things that we experience. And therefore, he is able to sympathize with us. In verse 2, Isaiah writes, For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form of majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. Now, often when we read verse 2, we think that he's ugly. We think, you know, Isaiah is saying Jesus is an ugly dude. That's not what Isaiah is saying here when he says no beauty that we should desire him. What Isaiah is saying here is that Jesus looked like all of us. He literally was a normal priest like all the other priests. And he came from Israel. And if we were to see him, we wouldn't think, wow, that he looks rugged and handsome like King David or King Solomon. Jesus looked like us. And he wrestled with things like us. And he experienced things like us. Jesus, he he understood what it looked like to kind of go through an average day, to wake up in the morning, to go through the day, to work, and then to go to bed at night. Jesus knew what it was like to be misunderstood, to have peers reject him. He understood what it was like to watch his father die, Joseph. He understood what it was like to watch his friends turn away from him. And in verse 3, Isaiah writes, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Here, Isaiah is telling us that Jesus knows the pain of rejection by men which are strangers and by his own people, those that esteemed him not. He understood and understands what it means to be unpopular. He understands what it feels like to be misunderstood. He understands our sorrows. 
any of you four Enneagrams in the audience today, he understands what you feel like all the time. And he actually gets you. Because he has experienced all of these things. Jesus, our priest, he sees us and he sympathizes with us. Isaiah explains his sympathy as our high priest this way in verse 4a. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Jesus, our high priest, he never protected his heart. He left himself vulnerable all the time so that the mockery hurt him more than anyone. Why? So that he could identify with you and me when we're hurt. When we feel betrayed by friends, Jesus, he understands and sympathizes with us. When we're tempted by Satan, he understands because he too was tempted yet without sin. When we're suffering from a disease, Jesus understands because his body was afflicted. And we, when, when we are at death's door, he understands because he went through that door. Isaiah is telling us in our text this morning that Jesus is the sympathetic priest. He lived and he walked amongst us. He felt the sun on his face. He felt the cold chill of a winter's wind. He understood the loneliness of a dark night. He felt the loss of loved ones. And he felt the joy of sweet fellowship. In verses 2 through 4, they remind us this morning that we have a priest who sees us and who sympathizes with us. His name is Jesus Christ. He bears our griefs and he carries our sorrows. I wonder, are you feeling alone this morning? Are you feeling misunderstood are you hurting this morning? Are you sad? Are you angry? Are you struggling with some particular temptation? Whatever circumstance that you and I are going through this morning, we have a priest who understands us and who sympathizes with us. And so I wonder today what it would be like for you to talk to him about what's going on inside your heart Maybe to take a walk with him this afternoon or this week and to cast your burdens upon him. He is our high priest who sympathizes with us. And yet secondly, we also see that Jesus, he is the self-sacrificing high priest. If you look at verses 5 through 9, Think back, due to Adam and Eve's disobedience, we are all born with a sinful nature in need of forgiveness and regeneration. And throughout the Old Testament, God established a sacrificial system in which priests would enter the temple, they would sacrifice animals to help atone for the sins of the people. But for full atonement and restoration to occur, God himself would have to die. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 through 9, 
Isaiah tells us that God did just that. Look at verse 6. All we, like, all we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us in this room, we have turned our, to our own way. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. And then in verse 5. But he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. For all of mankind's sin were upon him. And that chastisement, that chastisement that was upon him, that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And then verses 7 through 9. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, Jesus was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb, referring to the sacrificial system that has led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Jesus didn't defend himself. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, Stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave. They killed him. Hanging him on a cross. With the wicked. And with a rich man in his death. Jesus Christ the high priest. He didn't go into the temple and offer an animal to sacrifice to atone for our sins. He freely offered himself on the altar to pay the penalty for our sins. And to make it possible for us to be restored with God. Through Jesus' substitutionary work, all who profess faith in him, their sins are forgiven. They are given a new nature. They're given a new status as beloved sons and daughters. Like Aslan dying for Edmund in the Chronicles of Narnia so that he might live, Jesus Christ, our high priest, died for you and me. This is the true story of Christmas. This is your Jesus, the self-sacrificing high priest. And the question for us this morning is, what is our response to the self-sacrificing high priest? And as I was thinking about this this week, the first thing that comes to mind is gratitude. Christ's sacrifice is so familiar to many of us that it's easy to take it for granted. But during the Advent season, I hope what is familiar becomes fantastic to us again. I hope our hearts are filled with gratefulness, not only for Christ's birth, but for his passion. For as our text says, it is by his wounds that we are healed. And so our first response to the self-sacrificing high priest is gratitude. The second thing that comes to mind as I think about our response to our self-sacrificing high priest is sacrifice. In Romans chapter 1 through 11, Paul, he presents the gospel message. It's basically a longer version of Isaiah 53 verses 5 through 9. Then in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, he says this. 
He says, this is how you are to respond to Christ's sacrifice. I appeal to you, therefore, because of our self-sacrificing high priests, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our response to the self-sacrificing priests is to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Now, the word in the Greek for sacrifice here literally means killing. So Paul is saying we are to be a living killing. It's a paradox. Unlike the sacrificial system, which his readers were so familiar with, our blood does not have to be shed because Christ's blood has already been shed on the cross. He has atoned for our sins. Therefore, we are living sacrifices. We're not dead. We're not like those animals that are sacrificed on the altar. We can crawl off the altar. We're alive. But like the sacrificial system, there needs to be a killing. Not of our bodies, but of our wills. Paul says we are to put to death the right to live the life we choose. Let me repeat that. Paul says we are to put to death the right to live the life we choose. We are to bend our wills to Christ's will for our lives. This week, I listened to an old sermon by Dr. Gershner on this very passage, Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. Now, Dr. Gershner was R.C. Sproul's mentor. He was an amazing pastor and preacher. And in this uh, sermon, he tells a story of, of this young woman who came to Christ at 15 and she came to, to Jesus, she professed faith in him, and she wanted to be sold out. She wanted to, to offer herself as a sacrifice. And so she felt called to go to the mission field. She wanted to go to Asia. Now, this was back in the 1930s. And Dr. Gershner said he, he'd heard, you know, many kids come up and say that they wanted to be missionaries. And he was like, okay, yeah, whatever. That'll, that'll probably happen, maybe, maybe not. But he watched this young woman through high school, and she was set on being a living sacrifice and going to Asia. Now, that was back in the 1930s. And during that time, it was very risky for you to go to Asia, to go to China. Many people, many missionaries were being martyred during that time. And she was fully aware of the dangers that she was facing. But she committed herself to say, I'm going to go. I want to follow Christ. I want to do whatever he wants me to do. Now, in the 1930s, for a woman to be a missionary in Asia, there was one problem. She couldn't go alone. She had to be married. And so what did she do? She went to God and she prayed to God and said, God, Please give me a spouse so that I can go and serve you. And so, what did she do? Where's the best place to find a spouse? Go to Bible college. So she went to Bible college for four years. And during Bible college for four years, still no spouse at the end of her fourth year. 
Then she went to a three-year missionary school. And at the end of the three years, still no spouse. And she said on the night before she graduated, she went back to her dorm room and she became incredibly angry with God. She prayed to him saying, unlike other young girls her age, she gave up everything for him. And the one thing that she needed God to do to provide for her, he didn't. Dr. Gershner said it was in the quiet of her dorm room that night that the Holy Spirit convicted the young woman. She realized that while she thought she had offered her life as a living sacrifice before the Lord, committing herself to serve as a missionary, she still was demanding God to come through for her and provide a husband so she could go overseas. She had not fully surrendered her life to the Lord. She still had her, but only if I'll go. And then after telling the story, Dr. Gershner, he turned to the young people listening to him that morning. And he asked, if she was willing to do all of this and still found that she wasn't offering herself fully to God because of her but only if, how about you? And that's the question that I've been wrestling with this week. And the question that I want to ask you this morning. How about you? The self-sacrificing priest gave his life so that we might be restored to the Father. Our response is gratitude. And our response is to offer our lives as a living sacrifice which means giving up the life that you are choosing to live. Giving up the what ifs, or but only if I'll follow you. And as I was thinking about this this week, we all have those things. I'll follow you, I'll follow you, only if you do this or that. So I wonder, during this Advent season, What is your but only if? And what would it look like for you to take that to the altar and to sacrifice it before God as your spiritual act of worship? What might God be calling you to surrender? Are you giving up the right to live the life you choose and follow the life that God has chosen for you? In our text this morning, we first see that Jesus, he's the sympathetic priest. Secondly, we see that Jesus, he is the self-sacrificing high priest. Third and lastly, we see that Jesus is the victorious high priest. Isaiah ends chapter 53, informing his audience, though the self-sacrificing high priest was crushed, He will rise again and as a result bring forth many children because they are all given his alien righteousness. Look at verse 11. Isaiah says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. His righteousness is going to be imputed 
on those who profess faith in him. And he shall bear their iniquities. And then in verse 12, Jesus, the victorious high priest, he will receive all those the Father has given to him. I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. None that the Father has given him shall be lost. Jesus will be victorious. And Isaiah ends his beautiful chapter reminding us that Jesus is seated now at the right hand of the Father, always making intercession for us, the transgressors. Jesus is our victorious high priest. He is in heaven, seated at the right hand, and he right now is interceding on our behalf. He's sympathizing with us because he was sacrificed on a cross. He's enjoying our gratefulness and our gratitude as we worship and thank him for his sacrifice. And he delights in our spiritual act of worship. The fact that we are willing to surrender our wills to his will. This table that we're about to partake from demonstrates Jesus' ultimate victory. For at this table is where Jesus shows that he has won the battle. For as we come and partake of the bread and the wine, our feasting is a smack in the face of evil. Amen.